So we've been in a series in the book of Matthew for the past um, 10, 11 weeks. Today is week number 11 in this series. I usually go through books much faster than this, but I decided we would slow down and take our time working through Matthew just a little bit. I mean, we've still moved pretty quickly, I think, but we're still taking a little bit of time dealing with some of these things. This is week 11, and the most important lesson that I hope you have learned so far in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is a king unlike any other. That he is a king who far surpasses any of the other kingdoms of the world. But the problem is he is also the king we didn't want. We want a king of power and strength. We want a king who will defeat our enemies and ensure our security. But time and time again, we have discovered in the book of Matthew that Jesus is a king of weakness. He never exerts his own power and authority against an enemy. Instead, he exerts his power and authority for people other than himself. Everything he does is for the people around him to draw them closer to himself and to draw them closer to his heavenly father. But Jesus lives in a place of weakness. More than that, he actually teaches his followers they're supposed to live in a place of weakness. And like I said, we want a king who can keep us safe from our enemies. But Jesus literally told his followers last week that if they follow him, they will be less safe than if they didn't. Would you follow a king like that? Would you follow a king who outright tells you he's not here for you? who outright tells you he is not here to keep you safe, who outright tells you that if you run into an enemy, he's not going to step in and defend you, that if you run into an enemy, you're supposed to just take it, whatever they send your way. Would you follow a king like that? That's our problem. That's our dilemma. And the book of Matthew has repeatedly shown us that on the one hand, Jesus is a king with all sorts of power and authority beyond ourselves. I mean, this guy can, he can calm the storms. He can cast out demons. He can heal the sick and raise the dead. This is a king with incredible power. But he also repeatedly tells us that he isn't planning to use his power to help you live a more comfortable life. He's not planning to use his power to solve your problems with your enemies. He's not planning to use his power to make your life easier. That's the thing that makes Jesus as a king so different from what we want. And if you're honest, I don't think there's any Christian alive who is a real Christian who hasn't at some point in their life been disappointed with the king they chose to follow. Disappointed with Jesus not coming through. And today we come face to face with it. Today we come face to face with a guy who is stuck in the middle. That'll make sense in just a little bit, but let's dig into it. Open up your Bibles or your app or whatever it is you're using to Matthew chapter 11 and look at verse 1 with me. It says this, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, remember last week we talked about Jesus instructing his 12 disciples on what was going to be coming for them and in the future and how they should share the message of Jesus with other people. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Uh, 
You might not be able to pick up on that unless you've heard me talk about this passage before. Incidentally, the first passage of our Christmas series called Jelly of the Month a couple years ago, I got into this passage in a little more detail. My, my whole message was just on John's disappointment and how Jesus comes through. Today I don't have time to go into all the details of that, but I will get into some of the detail with you. So we're going to have a little bit of an academic session here. But here's the thing. Immediately you need to hear the disappointment in John's voice. John says, are you the one who is to come? Sorry, John doesn't say. John's followers say. Because John can't go to Jesus because John is locked up in prison. We find that King Herod was upset when John called him out on some misbehavior the king was doing. And so the king decided to just throw John in prison so that John couldn't continue to spread these things about the king being in an adulterous affair with his brother's wife. But that's not, that's neither here nor there. John was in prison and he says, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for someone else? Also, did you notice the use of the word Messiah there? When John heard the message of what the Messiah was doing. In other words, the message that came to John was fully aware that Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. And John, I am positive, knew that Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. Do you know how I know that? We saw it just a few chapters ago. In Matthew chapter 3, I'll put it up on the screen here. In Matthew chapter 3, John is talking about his ministry to the people in Jerusalem. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Keep going. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If you didn't pick up on it, John believed that he was coming as the preliminary messenger to the Messiah who would wreck the world. The Messiah who would divide the world. He would gather the wheat and burn the chaff. He would be the Messiah to absolutely bring vengeance and judgment on this world. John saw himself in the position of Elijah the prophet as spoken of by Malachi the prophet. See, in the Old Testament, Malachi uh, prophesied that someday a Messiah would come and bring judgment on the earth. And before the Messiah would come, a prophet would come who was like Elijah. And so when John says what he said in Matthew 3... It's obvious that John believed he was the Elijah prophesied in Malachi to precede the Messiah who was going to bring vengeance and judgment on the earth. The Messiah was going to divide people between wheat and chaff, and he was going to gather the wheat and burn the chaff. If you've been paying attention for the last couple of weeks, you might remember that Jesus' entire ministry was about gathering the harvest. John expected that. The gathering of the wheat was an important part of the Messiah's job. But the burning of the chaff was another one. And here's the problem. John was neither. John was languishing in prison and he wasn't being gathered. John was languishing in prison and he wasn't being burned. 
And Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah. I mean, he's here. But here is John personally in the middle. Jesus isn't doing either of the things he's supposed to do when it comes to John. And so John sends his messengers. And he says, are you the one who is to come? Or should I keep waiting? Should I expect someone else? Was I actually the Elijah prophet? Are you actually the Messiah? Or was this just a big game? You can hear the disappointment in John's voice. And you know, the middle is a tough place to be. The middle is that place we've all been in for like the last 18 months. Just perpetual uncertainty. Like, is this the month the curve is going to finally get down to the bottom of the graph? Is this the month that something is going to happen and the world is going to be like, oh, we can do that and solve this problem. Is this the month we figure it out or do we have to wait another one? We've been in the middle for 18 months. Maybe you've been in the middle for longer than that. Maybe you've hit the darkest, deepest middle of your life right now and you're like, I thought last week was the middle, now I'm in the middle. This is the worst. God, just put me out of my misery or solve my problem, but don't leave me here in the middle anymore. That's where John was when he sent his followers to Jesus. And so if that's where you are, you're in good company because Jesus is going to say something about John in just a little bit that's amazing. But before we get to what Jesus says about John, we're going to look at what Jesus says to John. Take a look at this in verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And you're saying, but Jesus, I asked you a straightforward question. Are you the Messiah or aren't you? Just give me an answer. Just make it clear. Are you the one I was, I was waiting for? And do I need to change my expectations about you? Or do I need to have my expectations in someone else? Jesus, give me a clear answer. And if you're listening to this on the outside, or like I have been for most of my life reading this passage from the outside, I'm like, I don't get this at all. I don't understand why Jesus would be so insensitive to John and give this beating around the bush sort of answer. That is, unless you knew who John was. Don't you remember? I said that John knew the Old Testament to the point where he thought he was the prophet like Malachi. It makes sense according to Matthew chapter 3. More than that, if you look at the other passages about John the Baptist and the other things John the Baptist taught, it is obvious that John knows the book of Isaiah. In fact, Matthew quoted Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make, make way the, the, king, the, the pathway for the king. And Isaiah is quoted in the book of Matthew with regard to John. John knows Isaiah, we know that. What you don't know, and what I didn't know until just a couple years ago when I did the research into it, is that what Jesus says here, the list of things he says, are all things in the book of Isaiah the Messiah is supposed to do. Well, with a couple exceptions. Jesus leaves two things out, and he adds two things in. The list that Jesus gives to John, I think, is code language. I find it interesting that Matthew, the guy who's constantly quoting the Old Testament, 
doesn't quote any Old Testament passage in response to what Jesus just said. Maybe Matthew didn't know this part of Isaiah. Maybe Matthew did know this part of Isaiah and was in on the secret. But my own personal sort of opinion on the matter is I think Jesus was speaking in code. I think Jesus was speaking a code that only John the Baptist would have been able to decipher. And he makes a list. And he says, these specific things you can see in what I'm doing. But like I said, he leaves two things out and he adds two things in. The two things that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah should do that Jesus does not do are number one, freedom for the prisoner. Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would come and proclaim freedom for the prisoner. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't say that in his list here. Which I find to be incredibly coincidental that he is sending this to a guy who is literally languishing in prison at the moment, hoping that the Messiah would do what the Messiah is supposed to do. And in Isaiah, it said the Messiah was supposed to free the prisoner. And Jesus says, I'm doing all the other Messiah things. I'm not, I'm not doing that one. Jesus also said this. He left this one out. The day of God's vengeance. In Isaiah 61... Comfort, comfort my people. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and at the end of that passage, to declare the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus leaves it out. Leaves it out. It's almost insensitive that Jesus would send this message to John with all the list of all the things the Messiah is supposed to do except for the two things that are most on John's heart right now. The two things that are most important to him at the moment. Freedom from the prisoner, freedom for the prisoners, and bringing the vengeance of God. Those are the two things that John was most, most had on his heart. He is a prisoner, and he proclaimed that the Messiah would bring the vengeance of God. God, and Jesus specifically leaves them out. Can you follow a king who intentionally avoids the things you want him to do? Can you follow a king who will not meet your needs because he's got his own plans? Well, I told you that Jesus left two things out. He also added two things. And the two things he adds, I think, outweigh the things he leaves out. The first thing Jesus adds that is not found anywhere in Isaiah or any of the other prophets is healing of leprosy. Now, that's weird, okay? Because none of the prophets said that the Messiah would heal leprosy. It was never in any of the prophecies about the Messiah. In fact, healing leprosy is exceedingly rare in the Old Testament. There's one time when Moses sticks his arm in his cloak and pulls it out while he's standing in front of the burning bush. 
and he gets his arm covered with leprosy and he does it again because God tells him to and when he brings it out, his arm is clean and doesn't have leprosy on it anymore. So God proves that God can heal leprosy. Then there's one time when Miriam, Moses' sister, is opposing Moses' leadership and God strikes her with leprosy but Moses prays for her and God lifts the leprosy off and that's it except for one other time. There's one other time when leprosy is healed in the Bible. Do you want to know who did it? A guy named Elisha. And see, this is interesting. Because Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament in terms of miracle workings and showing power and all this stuff. But Elisha, the one who came after Elijah, immediately after Elijah, is the one who healed leprosy. You see, Jesus knows that John thinks he's the modern-day Elijah. Jesus also believes that John is the modern-day Elijah because Jesus is going to say that in just a couple verses. We'll hear him say it himself. But now Jesus is specifically mentioning leprosy because the only person who healed leprosy in a prophet-like manner in the Old Testament was Elisha, the prophet who came immediately after Elijah. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, you know that guy who came after Elijah? I'm like that guy. But Jesus adds one other thing. Not found in the prophets for the Messiah, Jesus adds this, raising the dead. Raising the dead. Now, This is weird, because Isaiah does talk about resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 26, we are told about dead people coming back to life. But what's weird is that in Isaiah 26, it's God who brings people back to life. Now, yeah, in the Old Testament, there's some stories of people who brought people back to life. Elijah brought a, boy, a little boy back to life. Elisha also brought a little boy back to life. But the prophets don't ever talk about the Messiah bringing someone back to life. What the prophets talk about is that God has the ability to bring people back to life. And so, on the one hand, you look at this passage and you're like, okay, so Jesus is just telling John some clues, some, some secret codes where Jesus is saying to John, John, listen, I'm doing everything the Messiah is supposed to do, but I'm not going to get you out of prison. And I'm not going to bring down the vengeance on all the bad people just yet. Okay? But John, guess what? I'm also better than any of the prophecies of the Messiah. I'm better than the prophecies because I have also healed lepers. And that puts me in the category of Elisha, who immediately followed Elijah, which was you. Oh, and by the way, John, I also raise dead people. And if you're John, I imagine you might have been really disappointed to hear some of these words, really confused to hear some of these words. But the question is, do you want a king who can solve your problem or do you want a king who can raise you from death? Do you want a king who can get you out of your issue or a king who can raise you from the dead? If you had a choice, would you rather have a king who gets you out of prison or a king who lifts your body out of the grave? But that 
That was weird, wasn't it? Jesus picked a passage from the Old Testament that only God does. He says one more thing in verse 6. Take a look at this. Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know what? That's also a code. Because Isaiah has something to say about this. In Isaiah chapter 8, we read these words. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for all people and for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. In Isaiah 8, The prophet tells us about a man, a person, someone who is going to be a stumbling stone to the people of Israel. Some individual who is going to be a stumbling stone to the people of Israel. The people of Israel are going to come up to this person and they're going to stumble and they're going to fall and it's going to cause all kinds of problems. They're going to be snared. They're going to be captured. They will stumble and fall. And Jesus says to John, Blessed are the people who don't fall away because of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm a person for whom people will, on which people will stumble. I am a person that will cause people to lose their direction, lose their faith, and fall away. I am such a confusing individual that some people are going to fall away, not in spite of me, but because of me. Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. And for John, this would have been amazingly shocking because I skipped a verse. In verse 13, it starts this way. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble. The stumbling stone is Yahweh God himself. When you see Lord in all capitals like that in the English translations of the Old Testament, those four letters represent Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew text. The letters that were God's divine name that the Hebrew people never said out loud because they were afraid of using it in vain. And so they replaced it with the pronunciation for the Hebrew word Lord. And that's why we have the word Lord written into our English Bibles, even though in the Hebrew text it says Yahweh, the name God gave himself at the burning bush. And so what we find out here is the burning bush God is the one you are to regard as holy. The burning bush God is the one who will be a stone that causes people to stumble. And Jesus just said to John, blessed is the person who doesn't fall away because of me. For John, he would have gotten the code. Jesus had just said in no uncertain terms, I'm not the Messiah you thought I would be. I am God in the flesh. And I have come to be my kind of Messiah. And there is some waiting that you have already done, but there is more waiting yet to do. Because see, at the end of that Isaiah 8 passage in verse 17, it says this. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. 
If John knew chapter 8, and I think he did, he would have known that Jesus was saying, John, there's still some more waiting to do. I am God in the flesh and I have come. But there's still more waiting to do. If you're taking notes, write it down. King Jesus is God in the flesh and he has come. But there's still more waiting to do. Will you trust him? That's the challenge to John and it's also the challenge to us. I spent most of my time on these first six verses because there's so much depth there. But I want to race you through the rest of this section because what Jesus does next is he points his finger not at John, he points his finger at you and at me and asks us how we're going to respond. And he gives us two options. Two options. And we get to choose which one is going to be true for us. The first option is this. If you stumble on Jesus, you will fall. And I'm not just talking about some, some little fall. You will fall all the way. If you stumble on Jesus, you will fall all the way. Pick it up in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. And John is in the king's prison. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's the quote from Malachi that is referencing Elijah the prophet who will come before the Messiah. And so Matthew is quoting Jesus who's quoting Malachi about this messenger. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus there outright says John is Elijah. So therefore Jesus outright is claiming that he himself is the Messiah to the people standing near him. No coded language now. No coded language. John got the code that included Jesus is God in the flesh. The rest of them don't get the code. They just get the idea that John was Elijah. Therefore, Jesus, the one talking to you now, is the Messiah. They get that much. That's what they get. But Jesus says two things in here that confuse a lot of people. In fact, scholars today are still really confused about them. The first one is what Jesus says about John. Jesus says that John is the greatest man who's ever lived, but the least person in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. And so I want to give you a quick explanation of that. Basically what Jesus is saying is that there has never been a person born on earth, lived on earth, died on earth, who is greater than John. But when the kingdom of God shows up, anyone who makes it into the kingdom of God is doing better than John. 
Now, of course, I think John is going to make it into the kingdom too. And when John gets into the kingdom, he's going to rank higher than the other people, of course, I think, because Jesus said he was the greatest of all. But, but nonetheless, Jesus' point is, John is still on earth. And you could strive to be the best thing on earth you could possibly be, and you'll never beat John. But what you really need to do is strive to be people of the kingdom. And then he makes this point, and this is the most confusing point. I'm going to put it back up on the screen here, but in a slightly different version in just a moment. Because this verse here is the most confusing verse, or one of the most confusing verses in the book of Matthew, and it hinges on one word. Now, the way we just read it said that the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people are attacking it. But the NIV, the same translation I'm using today for the majority of my message, the NIV back in 1984 had this version. And it said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. The problem is the word forceful. It's the same word used twice in this passage, once as a verb and once as an adjective. The problem with this translation is that it makes the kingdom make sense, but it doesn't make the second part of it make sense. When I was a kid, I I told you this last time about Jesus and the sword thing. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I mentioned something about that last week, but I was raised in kind of an environment and with this translation of the scripture that led me and some other people around me to conclude that the kingdom of heaven needs forceful people. The kingdom of heaven is driven forward by forceful people. The kingdom of heaven is pushed forward by people who are unafraid to use earthly power to get the work done. And so as a result, you get people who claim that we're in a, in a culture war and we need to use political power to accomplish Christian aims. Or you get people who, who claim that we're in a war against the, our neighbors and sisters and so we use some sort of other manipulative tactics to try to push people out of society or we remove ourselves from society and we feel like we're supposed to be against other people and attacking them because kingdom. The kingdom needs forceful people, right? There's just one problem. It's a bad translation. And the reason it's a bad translation is that the word that we translated back then as forceful men never means anything positive in any of the Greek texts, not just Christian, but all of them. That word always means violent in a negative sense. It never means forceful in a positive sense. And so to translate that word accurately, we have to translate the second version of it as a negative word. Go on to the next version. This is the way it is today in the NIV. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. So now the second half of that phrase has violence and a negative connotation. Violent people are attacking the kingdom. But since it's the same word at the first half, they put the same violent concept in the first half. There's another option. The New Living Translation does this. I'll show it to you. It says, and from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. You see how they use forceful for the positive sense, violent for the negative sense, because as a verb, it can be positive. It's just as an adjective, it can't be. 
So either Jesus is playing on the word to say two opposite things, or he's playing on the word to say the same thing, and I spent all this time on it to tell you it doesn't even really matter. Do you know why? Because what this is really trying to communicate, what these verses are really trying to communicate, what Jesus is trying to communicate, is that people keep attacking the kingdom. Maybe the kingdom is being driven forward by the forceful advance of Jesus' authority and power against Satan and the forces of evil. Maybe the kingdom of heaven is just advancing because that's the way it advances, and people have been attacking it all the time. It doesn't matter. The point is the same. People keep attacking the kingdom. What about you? See, Jesus has created a dividing line in the sand. The dividing line is this. Will you stumble on Jesus and fall? Will you be part of the group of people who is opposed to the kingdom, who is resisting the kingdom, who is fighting the kingdom, who is violently against the kingdom, or will you take another approach? Jesus says this thing out of a sense of sadness. Look next. He says, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In other words, we played happy music, and you didn't dance. We played sad music, and you didn't get sad. You've got no emotional connection to this thing at all. Emotional things are happening, and you are just disconnected from that all. You don't even care. And then he says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man, talking about himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. You can almost hear Jesus saying something like, well, just make up your mind, okay, to the people around him. Keep going, he says, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Here's Jesus' point. Some people oppose him and his kingdom, And they fall. If you stumble on Jesus, you will fall. And you're going to fall hard. The people who stumbled on Jesus back then get judged more harshly than Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Jesus. You have a choice. You can be one of those people who stumbles over Jesus, or you can be one of those people who surrenders to him. And if you surrender to him, Jesus says you will find rest. You'll find rest. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Little children are far more likely to just accept something that doesn't make sense. You could say the sky is blue because 
Ages ago, someone shot a gun of blue paint up to the ceiling of the earth, and it got blue, and the kid would go, You could tell the kid the sky is blue because his eyes are broken. And every time he looks at that color, he sees blue, but everybody else sees green. And he'd go, oh no. Kids just surrender to what is brought to them. You have to grow up to get really, truly rebellious. And Jesus says, Father, I thank you for revealing these things to little children. This is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to go back to a time when I was a kid. You know what I mean? When the food was provided, the money was taken care of, the household bills were paid, the stuffed animals were free, and just everything came to me when I needed it. And I complained about a lot of stuff, don't get me wrong. But all the stuff that I really needed just showed up. It was amazing. Magically, my clothes got clean. Magically, the dishes got washed. All kinds of stuff happened in my life for free, just automatically. I was at rest. I was at peace in so many ways. I imagine some of you have a child story similar to that. Some of you had real hard children's stories, but there are portions of your childhood that you're like, I wish I could get back to that. Every one of us has that kind of nostalgia for that sort of thing. But guess what? Jesus says, that's what I want to give you now. Just stop fighting. Just stop fighting. Don't stumble over me anymore. Just surrender and I will give you rest. And then, and then, and then. To prove he can do it. Let me show you this next little section. It's an epilogue to this whole passage. It begins in chapter 12. It says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, These guys are hungry. I'm just going to let them eat. So, So what if it's the Sabbath? But look what he says. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. What? Hold hold on there just a second. In verse 6, Jesus was supposed to say someone greater than David is here. David did this, and someone greater than David is here. In verse 6, Jesus was supposed to say, someone greater than the priests is here. The priests do this, but someone greater than the priests is here. But he doesn't. Jesus says, David did this in the temple. The priests do this in the temple. And someone greater than the temple is here today. If you can't pick up on that, that's Jesus saying, hey, I'm God in the flesh. Because what is the temple? but the house of God on earth. And if Jesus is greater than the temple, then he is the best house God has ever had on this earth. (laughs) Jesus says someone greater than the temple. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
That means he's in charge of rest. And going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So here's where it comes down. John the Baptist was confused because Jesus was the wrong sort of king. So he asks Jesus directly, and Jesus gives John some code words that help John to know that Jesus is exactly the kind of king that he's supposed to be, even though he's not the kind of king that John wants him to be. And then Jesus says to John, blessed are the people who don't fall away because of me. Then he looks at you, and he looks at me. And he says, hang on a second, there are some people who are still fighting against this kingdom. And all of those people are going to face judgment, and all of those people are going to fall. But there's another alternative. You can surrender to me. And if you surrender to me, I will bring you rest and satisfaction. And on the Sabbath day, you can eat, and I will heal your hand. I will bring you exactly the rest that you need, because Jesus is greater than even the temple. He is the Lord Yahweh over even the Sabbath. Let me give you a final phrase to take home. It's not just one sentence. It's a short little phrase. Our king has come. And that's a good thing. But the kingdom is still coming. And that takes patience. So don't give up. Don't resist. Just draw near and rest. Don't give up. Don't resist. Just draw near and rest. It's hard to know that the king has already come, but the kingdom is still coming. It's hard to know that your king is around, but you still have to wait. And so you might be tempted to give up. You might be tempted to resist, but don't. Draw near to him and find rest. I don't know exactly what you're going through right now. Maybe you are in the middle like John was. Maybe you're waiting for God to finally move in the way that you thought God was supposed to move. Maybe you're stuck there in that middle place. And I want to encourage you. You are not alone. Others before you have been there. Others are with you there right now because that's just the way the world works. Our king has come, but the kingdom is still coming. We're all in the middle. So don't, don't give up. Don't resist. Draw near to him and rest. Trust and rest. God will meet you as you need it, not necessarily as you want it. But his rest is certain. Your future is secure, and you can trust him. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. 
So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.